the process of science can be compared to that of carving a statue from stone. The slow but meticulous chipping away of excess material gets us closer to the true form. Slowly sorting objective fact from falsehood, science seeks to construct an accurate and precise explanation for the world around us. By asking questions and seeking information and data, the analysis allows us to draw new conclusions. Critical to the process, though, is the expectation of cross-examination, scrutiny and vigilant inquiry. For the scientific method to succeed, it needs both the open exchange of ideas and a rock-hard review process, so that over time, we establish a chain of trust that builds objective fact upon objective fact. While we see the results of scientific advancement around us each and every day, it's true to say not every field has progressed to the same extent with new revelations. The field of mental health certainly looks a lot different today than it did 40 or 50 years ago, but the tools and medicines we employ haven't changed that much. So in the wake of our growing mental health epidemic, it would seem prudent of the scientific community to expand its remit of research. And it has, to an extent. We spoke last year to Dr. Adrian Gray about psychedelics and their application for mental health conditions. That being said, there are accusations that scientific institutions are turning a blind eye to certain treatments and evidence because it challenges the existing mainstream ideology and science that underpins our existing treatments. Professor Julia Rucklidge is a professor of clinical psychology and the director of Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group at the University of Canterbury. Her research exposes the potential impact of nutrition on brain metabolism, gut microbiome, and how our mental health is directly tied to the gut-brain axis. She asks the question, can we fix our mental health epidemic with a drastic change in what we eat? Kia ora koutou, and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighborhood pediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Thank you so much, Julia, for coming on this podcast. Mental health and physical health as we know it is kind of one and the same thing. And that's how I've come to realize in my own practice in pediatric and emergency medicine. I think in the general public sphere, we have a really good understanding that eating better in terms of eating less processed foods, eating more vegetables, being careful about a caloric intake, all of those have a really big impact on our risk factors for things like obesity and dyslipidemia and diabetes and therefore cardiovascular health and brain health. I think the general public has a good understanding of that is important. I don't know that they all necessarily understand how much importance that has. But I think it's really interesting reading up about you and your research in terms of the intersection between nutrition and mental health. People know that eating better makes you feel better, but whether or not that's just a placebo effect versus actually at a microbiological level, is there science to back that up? Sure. Okay. That's a big, it's a long story. (laughs) Hopefully you have time for that, Nina, but I'll give you a bit of a background. I'm Canadian. I did my, my PhD and my clinical training at the University of Calgary. And it was a very traditional program that taught us that medication psychotherapy were the only ways to treat um, serious mental health problems and nutrition was irrelevant to the brain. That's pretty much, and I I think that's really standard. I mean, that probably similar in your own medical training, I'm guessing that there wasn't a huge emphasis on thinking about the food environment and its relationship to mental health. Is that fair? I would say that in summary, we had a few lectures about Uh the importance of nutrition. And this is my takeaways from those lectures was that uh, diets don't work. When we talk about things like fad diets, right? Fad diets don't work, uh, especially things people talk about like Atkins diet and keto diet, Uh all that kind of stuff. Uh Um, Apart from the caveat is like a ketone diet for people Mm -hmm. with like 
epilepsy and things like that, right? And that long-term studies, when it comes to like weight loss, it's really difficult to have significant lifestyle changes and maintain the weight loss. And so I feel like the takeaway from all of that was like, oh, don't try so hard to tell your parents to eat better. Sorry, tell your yeah. parents. Don't try so hard to tell your patients to eat better because it doesn't always work. Uh, it's probably easier to just give them medicines because okay, it's right. so hard to maintain yep. those changes. Uh, don't bother. Just make people feel yep. bad about themselves. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, my area of research when I was doing my PhD was in ADHD. So you're probably really familiar with that as a pediatrician. Is that, and it very much late, the mid 1990s was when I was doing this, was that medications, Ritalin is the absolute best option. There, there had been talk of diet with respect to ADHD in the 60s and the 70s, but completely had been dismissed as being irrelevant to the treatment of ADHD by the 1990s. And, and really, every kid who was diagnosed ADHD, the primary number one frontline form of treatment is medication. And it still is. I mean, to this day in New Zealand, it's still the first thing that's offered to to somebody who is diagnosed with ADHD. So that's I just giving you that back the background to me falling into this area of nutrition was that I was, of course, skeptical. If anybody said to me that nutrition was relevant, I was like, but that's not what I was taught. And that's that's not what the books say. And so I would really dismiss it. But what happened when I was doing my PhD was that my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, was approached by some families from Southern Alberta, Canada, who were using nutrients in a pill form, vitamins and minerals in a pill form, to treat serious and complex psychiatric disorders, things like bipolar disorder, psychosis, uh, major depression. And I'm sure from your training, and also as an ER doctor, you will see people who go into a manic episode. So that's probably an experience that you, I I certainly, when I I did a a rotation in in, um, emergency, you'd see people coming in who were, who had some kind of a psychotic breakdown, et cetera. So to suggest that nutrients could treat these serious conditions, you can imagine my supervisor just told them to take their snake oil somewhere else. But she was, they followed up and they provided her with some of the data they were collecting, not as experts, but just doing their best to sort of what are symptoms that we typically see with mania and track them as people were transitioned from medications onto this, the vitamins and minerals and showing people getting well. Bonnie decided to do a small open label study, and it was published in a really good journal. I think it was the, I'm trying to think, Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and where she documented people taking the nutrients who had bipolar disorder getting well and staying well. And rather than this being embraced by the scientific community, she got ridiculed and dismissed. And in fact, the research, she'd started a randomized control trial at that stage, and it got shut down by Health Canada because people were stopping their medications, not because they were getting unwell with the, new, the, with the treatment. It was that they were tra- stopping their medications, and that was against protocol. You can't do that. So it's been an in- so she had this really uh, difficult time trying to do the research in Canada. I had moved, I, I, I listened to her, have great respect for her. I was curious. But I moved on. I went into the postdoc, and then I came to New Zealand and started a job as a child clinic, as teaching child clinical psychology in the clinical psychology program here at Canterbury. But she came out here in 2004, and she presented her data. And I, by that point, I'd been in this field long enough, which, to be honest, isn't that long. It was only maybe five years since I'd finished my training, but long enough for me to kind of go, you know what? People aren't getting well. Like I've taught, been taught these treat about these treatments. I was doing research with ADHD. They were getting the best care. They were all on medications. And they were still, they would still meet, technically meet criteria for the condition to which they're being treated for. That's not true in every case. I mean, absolutely, we see kids who go into remission. But to see people getting the best care and not being in remission, to be honest, I mean, if this was a broken leg and people's leg was still broken, I think we'd kind of stop and go, that's not good enough care. But when it comes to psychiatry, it's, it's, seems that we have a different bar, an expectation of how things are going to go. And so I guess I thought, I was naively thought, well, why don't we try these? Why don't I try these nutrients? I might as well. I didn't have the background in nutrition, but I I, I was like, as a scientist, 
you're supposed to be curious and you also need to sometimes contravene the current way of thinking. That's got to be our job. And so I walked into it incredibly naively and thought, let's do some trials. And so I started trials in 2008, had terrible time doing this research. Every obstacle you can imagine was put in front of me from the ethics committee not wanting to allow me to do this work all the way to when you collected data and were ready for publication, it getting rejected over and over again without peer review. So just being the the editors just saying, this isn't of interest to our journal, even though we were documenting people getting well. So, so why, why do you think that the Western community, Western like psychiatric psychology community yeah. is not ready to look at nutrients as a treatment or malnourishment as a cause for mental health issues. I always try to be kind about it and think about it from their perspective. And that is that if, based on what you told me earlier and your training was that basically there's not a lot of evidence here. And even if they do try it, it doesn't work. Let's not. And every, and you also hear the thing of just eat a good diet. Then there, there's this perception that additional nutrients is not going to make a difference. And so immediately from the get-go, you're faced, you're hitting against a, a very strong belief that is inva- it's pervasive across all of medicine and also across clinical psychology as well. And other health disciplines that work in the mental health field is that this is it's a medical model. It is the reason why people have these problems is this chemical imbalance, that story that we've been talked that has been discussed in, since the late 1980s. And so it's really ingrained in our education. So to come along and say that it's as simple as looking at what we're eating to have a huge effect on people's mental health, I think is just, they probably think, well, if it's that simple, then we would have found it by now. I mean, I guess I'm just sort of throwing out some ideas. If you have any other thoughts on why I've had so much resistance. Even this week, I'm dealing with uh, rejections from journals based on some recent studies, randomized control trials that we've done, and really hitting against this very strong medical model, medications work, even dismissing that we even need to be looking for other choices and other options for people. So it's really quite bizarre, to be honest, because I'm just, if we found that it didn't work, I would publish that. And the, pr- the problem I think I've had is that we've shown these things are effective and can be effective for people. In some cases, absolutely life-changing. I was like only a couple of hours ago, I was doing a review of a teen who's currently in one of our clinical trials. And at this point, we don't know what this person was, ra- this teen was randomized to in the first eight weeks because it's an RCT with a placebo. But in the second eight weeks, they're definitely on the nutrients. And this kid has gone from absolute hideous, angry episodes, temper outbursts that could last for days to nothing, nothing. So mother was like, this is amazing. I've got my notes here. Incredible. His personality is epic. Loving the school holidays for the first time. It doesn't always happen that way. I have, I don't want everyone to think this is a miracle cure. But I've seen enough of these over the years, and we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people, that there is something to these vitamins and minerals that can have a really incredible effect for some people. Yeah. So the current, like we talked a bit before about like the current Western medical model of psychiatry being, oh, it's just a chemical imbalance and we just need to prescribe some antidepressants, so a classic SSRIs, and that will make people feel better. And I don't know many people who, like personally, who have been on SSRIs and felt really good on them. And then there's this movement of like, oh, people just need to be on the medicines and I shouldn't be ashamed of being on this medicine. So that's that's totally fine. I accept that some people need it. But I think it seems anecdotally that a lot of people don't really have a good time being on SSRIs. And so is this theory of, oh, we don't have enough serotonin in our brain and these SSRIs are going to improve that and that's going to make people feel better. If there's a a flaw in that theory. I want to understand a little bit more about why you think that there's benefit of nutrition and mental health. Is there a biomedical model that could explain that? Yeah. I mean, I think there it is. It does come down to biochemistry in a big part of it. Absolutely. Well, the serotonin 
a hypothesis has been uh, really challenged in the last couple of years. Joanne Moncrief wrote a, a pretty substantial piece um, uh, collating the literature and saying there really isn't any evidence here. But what we do know is that it does change people when they take when they do take an SSRI. It does change their biochemistry. It is changing. We know that it's having an effect at the at a at the synaptic level. That's been very well shown. But what is being challenged is that you had a serotonin deficiency to start with, and so that and that's the rationale for giving it. Though that's always been that's been this sort of selling market is that well this is what's wrong with you you have a serotonin deficiency although no one ever gets tested I always ask people when they tell me that I say did you, did your doctor test your serotonin levels before prescribing the SSRI to just test to make sure you have a serotonin deficiency. And you know that never happens. That's not how that's you can't test someone's serotonin levels. I've never seen that been done. (laughs) Exactly. But and yet that's really a strong belief that people come in with, which is that this is what's wrong with me. I have a serotonin deficiency. And if you start to argue even with that or say or sort of even implicate that the science isn't there, I've actually found there's no point in going there because it's such a strong piece of their identity. And it also gives them sort of that permission of why they need this medication. And so if at the end of the, the people who are listening, if it works for you, then fantastic. And it's definitely doing something at a chemical level, but it's not necessarily that it's correcting a, a serotonin deficiency per se, but it's influencing your serotonergic system, which we know is is implicated in mood regulation. And so there's no doubt it's having some effect there. But the rationale that's being given to people as to why they should be on it, the science doesn't support that. And that's what I've been feeling a lot lately, reflecting on medicine as a whole and the history of medicine and the advances, so-called, that we've been making. And sometimes I question if the science is still sciencing because <laughs> are we going back and rechecking our work or are we just trying to move on to the next thing? And the next thing is always built on the fact that the previous stuff was right. Do you know what I mean? Is that, no, absolutely. I mean, again, sorry to keep bringing up things that happened to me like recently <laughs> and what's sitting on my desk. But it's kind of like forefront. And maybe this is kind of like just you can sort of see the life of a researcher in this area. I just have a review here where we got this rejection. But the study is on we're using we use nutrients in pregnancy to help to see whether or not we could support people who had antenatal depression. So I can't talk about the results there because we haven't had them. It's not published yet. But here is something that this is the kind of thing that I come against is that we had talked about antidepressants as being not, there's no evidence to show that they work during pregnancy. There's no randomized control trial that has ever been done on antidepressants during pregnancy. That probably surprises a lot of people because they think that exists. I have scoured the literature. If you know of it, or if any of your listeners know of a study of an RCT during pregnancy, I would love to know. But what was put, what was absolutely said here was that the authors wrote that there is a lack of evidence supporting the efficacy of antidepressants. This is factually false, is what this reviewer wrote, as there is a plethora of strong evidence to support the use of antidepressant medication in pregnancy, and it is strongly recommended by worldwide experts in obstetrics, maternal fetal medicine, psychiatry, and pediatrics. So tell me, Nina, is there any evidence of using antidepressants during, during pregnancy? Have they done trials? Have we missed something? Broadly speaking, in medicine, like you, you have this pressure as a pr- practitioner to not doubt the institution so much. You want to maintain that trust from the public, but then that sort of gets in the way of you questioning like what people have done and what what, what we've what we do today and what we've done before. Because how much of my learning as a practitioner is just what I've learned from what other people have said, but how much have they learned from just what someone else has said? Because we actually, I mean, as a full-time, well, not I'm not full-time, yeah. but my work is mostly as a clinician. I don't really get that much of an opportunity to one, do research or read about the research. And then sometimes you read yeah. research, literature reviews, randomized control trials, and there's a lot of citations. And then you go and look at their citations and their citations aren't actually randomized control trials. They're sort of uh-huh. citing another literature uh-huh. review, which is citing another literature review. Exactly. And then it becomes this thing. So it, that, that's why I'm really interested in finding out different d- different yeah. ways of looking at these issues. Um, well, that, well th- so I that may be well what's happened in maternal health is that 
there there's the data that there's the RCTs that have been done in non-pregnant people. But and then there's this expectation that this you'll get the same results in pregnant people. But the RCTs were never done. And there's probably a reason for that is that every single study that has looked at this and it may be they're flawed retrospective is that it actually identifies a negative outcome or no good outcome for the offspring. It's not identifying that these infants are superior. It's actually identifying that they are more likely to be preterm. They're more likely to be of low birth weight. Those have been documented on a number of different observational studies. So you can imagine that nobody really necessarily wants to do an RCT because they might actually uncover that for real. And then what are you going to do? What is medicine going to do if they can't give antidepressants in pregnancy? So at the moment, it's very clear. The, The story is very clear, and I've seen it over and over again, is that it's safe, it's effective, and we must do it. And so our research is really not deliberately challenging that paradigm, but by researching something else, it is having it may have an impact on what's currently done. And it's I can I'm sympathetic to the challenges that clinicians have around wanting to do the best for their patients and not wanting to do harm. And maternal mental health is one of those very interesting spaces because historically women weren't allowed in randomized controlled trials for all sorts of studies because women are hormonal and you don't know what time like their cycle is going to be. So we can't really test on women. And so all the studies were done on men and then it doubles down for um, women who are pregnant because there's anxiety in the clinicians, anxiety in the patients about, Oh, should I be on this RCT? I know. I was glad when the RCT was done. I was, we were holding a lot of clinical responsibility by running this RCT with these micronutrients where we couldn't promise that there was no risk. The study is a lot about risk as well. And so we have, we're following those infants. We have a whole series of, of, of studies looking at not only whether or not it had an effect during pregnancy, but also whether or not it had an effect on birth and whether or not there was an effect on the infant and um, whether or not there's the, an effect on the infant long term. We've got this whole big story that I just would love to be able to publish, but we can't get it through the gatekeeper at the moment. But I can assure you that it's not bad news. (laughs) From a scientific point of view, in terms of the biochemistry of mental health and nutrition, why do you think that there is benefits in supplementing various vitamins and nutrients? Yeah, no, great question. So I think there's a number of things that are going on here. One of them is super simple, and it's that... If you know about brain metabolism, that you convert one chemical to another chemical, example, tryptophan to serotonin, you need an enzyme to support that, that your body makes based on your, that your, there's a code for it on your, in your genetics, in your DNA. And, but on top of that, enzyme needs cofactors. And those cofactors are vitamins and minerals. And it's not a sim- single one. Each biochemical reaction has its own combination of supports for that enzyme, for whatever enzyme is doing that transition. So you might need B6, you might need zinc, you might need magnesium. There's no single magic nutrient, but we know that we need them in combination together to support all these different biochemical reactions. I've just told you of one, tryptophan to to serotonin. There are you know, I don't can't, I don't know what it is, but I thousands and thousands of chemical reactions that are happening making dopamine, making noradrenaline, et cetera, et cetera, making hormones, et cetera. So you need these cofactors. So that's a simple way to think about how important they are. So if we aren't getting an adequate supply of those vitamins and minerals from our diet, then supplementing is going to have a a positive effect. But even if you're eating well and you have a defect in that enzyme that does that transition, then we know from, you You hopefully will remember from, I don't know if you, this was medical school, but it certainly was something that was covered in high school with when I w- went through high school chemistry, was that in order to change a reaction, you can add more cofactors and you can speed up a reaction. So if there's a defect in that enzyme and it's slow and sluggish, you can speed up that metabolic reaction by adding in more cofactors. And that's what we think is maybe one of the mechanisms for why you some people might need extra is that they have a genetic difference that leads to a sluggish enzyme, as simple as that. 
That's just one example of what the nutrients are doing. It's also, if we think about mitochondrial function, the mitochondria being the powerhouses of every cell, they make ATP. One thing that, it, and, and you will have learned about that, I know, in medical school about the Krebs cycle. But one thing I wonder... Oh, don't is, bring up the Krebs yeah, cycle. Yeah, exactly. But one thing, <laughs> let me ask you. And let me ask you, though, Nina. When you learned about the Krebs cycle, did you learn about the fact that when there was, you know how it's, I, I can't say because I don't have it in front of me, but you go from one chemical to another chemical to another and ATP is getting released. Did, did they talk about that there's a cofactor of vitamins and minerals required at every single one of those steps? Did they highlight those specific minerals and vitamins that are required? I'll be honest with you. I remember very little. It was a traumatic time in my life. <laughs> Everyone, every time I raise this, that's what happens. I, I don't know what they're doing to you guys. But anyway, there, there's these vitamins and minerals are required for the Krebs cycle. If you have a low supply of vitamins and minerals, then the manufacture of ATP is simply going to be compromised because you don't have all the ingredients available for that Krebs cycle to operate at its best, at its optimal. So that's another reason. So that's just two. If you think, if you know about methylation being so important, that's the production of methyl groups, carbon with three hydrogens. They and they, the amazing thing about a methyl group, and I'm saying this very simply, so I hope there's no geneticists who are going to cringe, but it's hopefully at least it's good for your audience, is that these methyl groups are amazing because they attach themselves to the the helix. I, I don't know if it's visual. The, the yeah, DNA. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it can either have the influence of opening it up or closing it down so that the either you can have the genetic code will be read or won't be read. I mean, it's not an on-off switch. It's more like a dimmer switch. So these methyl groups are remarkable in being able to influence having an epigenetic effect on whether or not something, certain enzymes might be made or not made. So it's incredibly complicated but that hopefully that simple explanation means we probably need some methyl groups mm. well the methylation cycle is entirely dependent on vitamins and minerals being present particularly your b vitamins so you've heard about things like methylfolate that's particularly important for methylation so you can start to see that there's this web of things that are happening biochemically in our body not just in our brain that are completely dependent on a good supply of vitamins and minerals. They're going to be important then in regulation of mood, uh, regulation of your attention for dopamine production. It's going to be important for regulation of your fight-flight response in terms of stress or making adrenaline, et cetera. So you can see how important they are. Now, you think, okay, well, I just need to get that out of my food. That's when the journey, my journey became really interesting because I was told and taught, just like maybe you were, is that as long as you eat a balanced diet, you're going to be fine. And that's when I lear- I started to go it, to really delve into that literature and go, oh my God, we are not eating a balanced diet. Not a- Many of us are eating mostly ultra-processed foods. And you think that it might just be on occasion, but the population data show that it's probably about at least half of our calories are coming from ultra-processed products. So we, as a consequence of the introduction of ultra-processed foods over the last 100 years, we have had basically what I call a nutritional displacement. The more you're eating ultra-processed products, the less opportunity you have of eating foods that are rich in vitamins and minerals. Ultra-processed foods are really low in vitamins and minerals. Sure, some of them are fortified with a few nutrients, maybe folate, maybe zinc, maybe magnesium. But we need about 30 vitamins and minerals to function at our best, optimally, to support all of that. And you're not going to get them from there. Which yeah. foods are ultra-processed foods that are people are eating all the time but not realizing? I, I, I think I, I, there are a lot of foods out there that you would be surprised are ultra-processed. I mean, all of our most of the cereals, our breakfast cereals, are, are ultra-processed. For the majority, there's a few exceptions, but most of them. And the easiest way to know whether or not something is ultra processed is to just look, read the ingredients. As soon as you see the ingredients have got things like emulsifiers, natural colors, flavors, preservatives, a lot of a, a lot a string of numbers can sometimes be a clue. Anything that you wouldn't find in your kitchen is the kind of the definition that's being more currently used is that you wouldn't have been able to make this in your kitchen. It's not, it's not a perfect definition because you can have ultra-processing 
occurring with, I'm trying to think of some examples of ultra processing occurring that don't necessarily have those additions. But that's a good way to sort of conceptualize this. Is it the addition of those ingredients in the products that has an effect on our mental health? Or is it the fact that because there's those things, there's less of other think, good things? Well, I don't think we have the answer to that. I think it's a combination of things that's happening. We've got the addition of the sugar, which we know can have an impact on our just overall function in terms of like the glucose spikes that can happen. So there's a that that's been the focus mostly of ultra processed foods, but we've kind of ignored a lot of these other additions and they're probably important. And then on top of that, they are low in vitamins and minerals. So we can't parse it out in terms of it being a specific thing that you're eating. But what we do know based on population data is and it's really quite this is a replication across different countries is that the more you're eating these ultra processed products, um, the more likely you're also going to have a mental health problem. The more you're eating sort of me- what they like to call the Mediterranean diet, it's not that special. It's just the one that's been studied the most. I think anything that's like real whole local food is going to is a, a really decent way to start. The more you're eating your fresh fruits and vegetables, your healthy fats, your olive oil, your fish, your nuts, your legumes, and then low in your ultra processed foods, low in the sugary drinks, then the less likely you're going to have a mental health problem. There's also prospective studies that have shown that the, your what I eat today predicts my mental health in five years time. But on top of that, what we have now, which we didn't have 10 years ago, are randomized control trials that take people who are eating this kind of fairly Western style diet identifying those people, identifying people who have also a mood disorder at the same time. This is a, a, I'm thinking specifically about the SMILES trial, which was done by Felice Jacques's group in Deakin, that they then took this type, these people with poor diet and poor mental health, and they were randomized either to a befriending group, which was the sort of social support group, or a dietary intervention. And there was, you're more likely to go into remission if you'd been randomized to the dietary intervention. And the dietary intervention encouraged the consumption of these uh, real whole foods sort of consistent with the Mediterranean-style diet. Then it's been replicated, and then it's been replicated again. We also have studies in the area of ADHD that shows that if you take kids who have a, are, are identified with ADHD and then you introduce them to a whole food diet, there's research that was just published over the last six months showing the benefits of that for their mental health. So we've got this really big growing body of literature from your observational studies, your prospective studies, your randomized controlled trials. And then on top of that, you've got the supplement studies that I've been doing, which shows that vitamins and minerals in a pill form is better than placebo for the treatment of various different conditions. You you have a pretty rock solid body of evidence now to say, Actually, this is something that we should probably be paying attention to in the medical community. And ultimately, going to the topic of your podcast, which is the revolving door, if we could address the food environment as a starting point, I always see my research as proof of principle that the food environment is not adequate. So if we can start addressing the food environment from, I would have to say now, from a maternal perspective, we got to target moms in pregnancy because there's so much data on mom eating those ultra processed foods in pregnancy and the negative impact it has on their offspring. That's where we need to start. And also with kids. Sorry, that's my big gem. I just want to bring it back to the SMILES trial. I actually read most of that article and because they randomized people to either, like I say, this befriending thing where you still had to show up for an appointment, eat basically hung out with somebody for an hour and just like did games and chatted, which I, I it was news to me. I didn't realize that was like a common control group for randomized control interventions. I hadn't seen that's it what before. It yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what it said in the article. And I was like, okay, I didn't realize that befriending was like a, a thing they used in these RCTs. And then the intervention group was like weekly visits with a dietitian. And then it's like fortnightly for a bit. And just to go over things like your diet and to basically go as close to a Mediterranean diet as possible. It wasn't giving people food. It was just giving people information about the food and I guess giving accountability. And in both groups, you obviously had the weekly or fortnightly visits. So you had that continuity, had someone to talk to about whatever's going on. And obviously with the dietitian, they got a much better outcome when it comes to remission for depression. And the question that 
it gave to me when I was reading this was have we got it wrong in how we structure our health system because mental health is super important everyone is absolutely pushing for better mental health in New Zealand some things to, some things to celebrate is that Mike King's Gumboot Friday has recently got funding from the government that's awesome people have been pushing for more counselling for young people but I guess this trial got me thinking is oh we really do not have enough emphasis on getting dietitians free or at least well subsidised for the public because in my practice as a hospital doctor the dietitians that I see are working on trying to get people bulked up, whether it's babies in the NICU who need to put on weight or elderly people or people who are post-op who are very deconditioned and malnourished from whatever. That's the majority, I think, of the work of dietitians in hospitals. If you want to do the stuff that we're talking about right now, about trying to get people's micronutrients up, trying to optimize their nutrition and their mental health and physical health, whether it's about getting better fitness, getting better mental health, all of these things, you have to pay for that. You have to pay a significant amount of money, just like you have to pay a significant amount of money to see a clinical psychologist. But we're very happy, like we say about the Western model of health, we're very happy to ask Pharmac to fund more medications, but there isn't that same feeling of funding the people required to provide the dietitian health, people to provide the nutritional advice or people to provide that psychotherapy. And I just think we've really got it wrong. Oh, I think we've gotten it wrong in a lot of places, but I'd even push it even further and say, I think we have a very fragile uh, population at the moment. And whether that's because of, I think the food environment contributes to that. We're less resilient. I, I could talk to you about a lot of the research that we did after the earthquakes here on resiliency and nutrients. But it, but the bottom line was that you're better, you do better, you recover better from a stressor if you're well nourished is the bottom line. And so that means that we need, we've got a more fragile population who's eating mostly this, these um, ultra processed products. I don't even want to call them food. 69% of the products sold in supermarkets as of, I think that was looked at a couple of years ago, uh, 69% of the products sold in supermarkets in New Zealand are ultra processed. So we've got a huge dependency on these foods. They're marketed to us as healthy. We've got the star rating system that basically is about comparing one ultra processed food uh, to another. The uh, star rating system is based on what's not in the food rather than what's in the food. So it won't get a high star rating if it's really nourishing and nutrient dense. It'll get a high star rating based on being low in sugar, low in fat, low in salt, and low in calories and fortified with one nutrient or fiber and you get a five star. So it's a broken system that isn't identifying all these emulsifiers and other things that we're now recognizing as having a negative effect on our microbiome. So that's been, that type of research has been coming out over the last few years. So there's a lot of things that are really supporting people to eat these ultra-processed products. The marketing that's cheaper, supposedly cheaper, I would argue with that one because we're paying for it somewhere else. We're paying, you guys, we're paying for it when somebody goes to the ER. And so we've got this system where we are, we've got a, a poor food environment. And then on top of that, you add in things like the changes in technology, we're more sedentary, we're not exercising as much, we're not we're not as socially connected as we were before COVID, and we know how important social connections are. There's all these different things that have happened to our at a population level that mean that I think we need to go to more preventative medicine. And yes, it's fine to say let's get more clinical psychologists. I'm a clinical psychologist, sure, let you whatever. But it's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Even more dietitians, I would say. Actually, if people were taught uh, as they're growing up, how, what are what's a real food? And it wasn't taught to us by the big food. food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then we'd have a, hopefully a better, a, a more resilient population to start with, and then they would be less likely to get sick. I mean, we know from COVID that the people who and I, 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 you're you're more of an expert on this than I would be. But my understanding from the literature is that the people who ended up in, a, in hospital were the ones who had comorbid condition, underlying comorbid conditions that were lifestyle related, cardiovascular, diabetes, obesity. So I can't, maybe this is a bit outrageous to say that 
perhaps if we were looking after our population a little bit better, we might have had fewer admissions. Is that too outrageous to say that? I don't think so, because like you, like we talked about before, is that people understand the link between food, nutrition and cardiovascular health, diabetes, all of that. And we also understand that there is a, a, a link between diabetes, poor cardiovascular health with COVID or like more, worse respiratory morbidity and mortality. So I don't think it's too much to say that actually diet and nutrition and as a whole does have an effect on perhaps the COVID admissions and how severe the COVID would be. If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I want to ask you a bit more about the gut-brain axis. We see a lot of children coming in with chronic abdominal pain. Yep. And what I do try and talk to parents about, because obviously we have to exclude all of the mm, bad and stuff, enough. right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but we have a lot of kids who come in and they've got this tummy pain and it's so common. And I think a lot of parents don't understand how common uh, tummy pain is in kids. And you exclude all of the, you know, I guess, pathological causes yeah. and when you talk to the parents and you ask them hey is there something else going on in your in the family life or is a child being bullied a lot of the time the answer is yes you find yeah. out that the parents are getting divorced for example yeah. but the mum or dad tells you oh but we've kept it very quiet the kids don't know and it's this realization that actually these kids they know they know mm, exactly absolutely. what's going on it, right stressed. and I talk a lot about the gut-brain axis, but I only know it from a relatively superficial point of view. And I want to ask you a little bit more because I think you'd probably be able to explain the gut-brain axis a little bit better. Uh, Well, possibly, but we're only (laughs) in the infancy of understanding it. So what we do know now is that there's a pretty strong way that the gut can communicate with the brain. One of them is through the vagus nerve. Other ways that it can communicate, I'm just trying to think of them, is the endocrine system. And other ways that it could communicate is that also is whether or not particles get through because of what was often called the leaky gut. We're starting to think that maybe some of these things that we're eating in ultra processed foods like emulsifiers might be having an impact on the lining so that it's more permeable and things can get through into the bloodstream. But we're still in those kind of early days, really, of, of better understanding that. So. I don't know. I'm certainly not an expert on the microbiome, but what I am learning, and we've, I've dabbled a bit in it. We've done a bit of micro, of, of research on the bacteria and the impact that the vitamins and minerals can have on bacteria. But what we are understanding is that what we do want is diversity. We want diversity of bacteria. That it's not like it's a good, bad, good or bad necessarily of bacteria, although there are some that can be harmful. But it's more that you have a diversity, like this wonderful ecosystem of support in your gut that helps support the digestion of food, produces butyrate, which we know is important, is it pr- protects the pathogens from getting into leaking into your bloodstream, digesting your food. I mean, they're just incredible ecosystem there that is, is there to support us. So what I can say, though, is that we're, what we're looking for is a good diversity. And what we know now is that the more you eat ultra-processed foods, then the less diverse you have, your microbiome is going to be. So even if we just sort of simplify it to that point, is that the diet, our dietary habits are really influencing the bacteria in our gut. And that what if you, but you can good with fortunately reverse that. You if you start to eat more diversity of your fruits and vegetables, Tim Spector talks about getting 30 different fruits and vegetables in a week. So if you're aiming for that then that can have a really positive impact on our microbiome. But what we do understand, though, is that the health of our gut is going to influence the health of our brain. And I think this might be getting to what you're saying. And so that is relevant because we used to think that the if we were anxious, that was causing the gut issues. But now we're starting to understand that maybe gut issues are causing the anxiety, or at least it's bi-directional. Because, and psychologists, you often will get referrals. Oh, there's nothing wrong with their gut. It's all in their head. And now I'm like, I'm not so sure about that. We really need to wonder more about 
what's happening in terms of that communication that's going on. Yeah, I don't think it's cut and dry one way or the other. I think I'd probably be on the side of it's probably like a both way direction. I remember learning, this is a while ago, I don't know if it counts as learning, I remember a a senior doctor mentioned this one time, which was that there was a study that showed that a lot of people who ended up committing suicide or attempting suicide, that in the lead up, maybe the last six or 12 months before that happened, a lot of those people ended up going to see their GP for non-specific abdominal or GI gastrointestinal oh, okay. symptoms. I didn't know that. As a, and I, I sort of connect that with my kids who have abdominal pain is that yeah. their feeling of abdominal pain is an expression of their own stresses yeah. as well. Yeah. Because I think it, it, the theory that I have been reading about is that from the gut to brain direction, the gut microbiome, the the bacteria produces various different um, molecules, like we were talking well, about, and some of them have action on um, neurons as if they were like neurotransmitters, which obviously has an effect on um, our autonomic system. So our parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system, like our fight or flight response, our sympathetic nervous system and our sort of our relaxing parasympathetic nervous, like the vagus nerve that you'd spoken about before. And then the other way goes around, which is the effect of the brain on the gut. So if you're stressed about something going on, then that also upregulates your autonomic nervous system. And then that will have effects on your gut microbiome in terms of the the signaling that goes the other way from like your gut to the microbiome. And we talked about the leaky gut in terms of does it increase inflammation in the gut? Does it make it more permeable to these chemicals and also permeable to the bacteria itself? So it's all very interesting stuff. But I think what I'm worried about is how far are we going down this rabbit hole of like woo versus yeah. science, right? right? Because I, I, bringing it back to your difficulties of getting um, research published is is are people just overly worried about getting down this rabbit hole of woo and snake oil, like we see? Yeah, because easy to do. Social media, right? We see a lot of influencers who want to flog vitamins, this vitamins that, and what's that thing that people talk about? Collagen. People love to talk about collagen supplements these days. They make uh-huh. a ton of money. Here's my code: twenty percent off That's all right. of that. Uh-huh. And how do you separate the science and the woo? How yep. do you like who seeks to benefit? from vitamins actually showing proof that they work. Exactly. Well, I mean, the supplement industry benefits from that for sure. And these influencers. <laughs> now, I can't say that these, I'm a, uh, I, I don't, I hate TikTok. I tried it out for a couple of days and I couldn't stand it. Probably I'm not hit, getting hit with these influencers as much as people who are on social media a lot, like our young people for sure. They keep telling you about TikTok and this person and that person told me to do this or whatever. But The bottom line is that it's been a huge challenge in our work, of course. One of the things that I think is important for your listeners to know is that I haven't received any money from the supplement industry. As I said before, we would have been happy to publish studies that showed no difference with placebo, but it just happens that we continue to see this the superiority of the micronutrients over placebo. And I have to say that our placebo effect is quite strong in the particularly mental health, and it might even be getting stronger, and it might be because People come in now with more of an expectation that it's going to help them, and that in itself tr- triggers the placebo effect. And we shouldn't discount that. We shouldn't discount the all. power of a placebo oh, effect. Oh my goodness! Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I completely agree. If we can, and that's the thing that some people will often say about antidepressants: it doesn't really matter if the they get better, even if it's just the placebo effect. Where I would say, but some of, there's some risks that we need to worry about here as well. So it's not a total neutral uh, playing field here. But going back to what I was saying around the supplement industry, so we don't, we've never had any money from the companies that make the products. They provide the product and matching placebo for free, and our funding comes from other independent sources. When it comes to the supplement industry, though, during research, it's actually unusual for this kind of relationship. Most of the time, they want to have control over it, that they can have control over the publication, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's, it is unusual to find a company like that. Now, I have a dog in here. Are you, can you hear her crying? Uh, okay. Slightly in the distance. I'll just... That's okay. Oh. You can bring her in. <laughs> okay, come here, Molly. You sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's just sorry about that. But sometimes I like to bring her to work because... Oh, <laughs> cute. All right. Oh, Molly, now you're going to be famous, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Okay, so that will calm her down. 
So going to the supplement industry, they don't actually, a lot of supplement industry, the supplement suppliers don't do research. Their customers are often people who are well and they're the worried well and they can make money out of that. So why would they do research to to show that, I, I mean, I don't even know what they would show around their supplements. So there's not a lot of supplements that have been developed specifically for people with mental health disorders, which is what we've been studying. So I have scoured the literature and I am absolutely familiar with the ones that have been studied and I'm familiar with the ones that haven't been studied. I can't say that supplements from the supermarket aren't going to work, but the dose is so much lower than the doses that are used in research studies that it is unlikely that they would confer the same benefit that we've observed. Which which mental health disorders and supplements have you seen that shows like the strongest evidence? Uh, the strongest evidence of using the supplements is for emotional dysregulation. So that's not a disorder per se. It's a transdiagnostic symptom. So it goes across all kinds of different disorders. So you'll see emotional dysregulation in ADHD. You'll see it in ODD, your behavioral uh, challenge kids. You'll see it in anxiety, depression, mood disorders. So you'll see it across the board in different things. So that's a bit probably su- maybe surprising thing to hear. But that's what we see is the first thing to get better is that they are calmer. They're better able to regulate their emotions. They are more resilient. What's in the recipe? What's in the recipe for these supplements? Is it a secret sauce? Not at all. I mean, I, ta- I tend not to talk about the specific products. I'm happy to say that what we, I mean, to mention what we're studying at the moment, we're studying something that's called daily essential nutrients. But I don't mention it like I, deliberately because I always think I'm studying an idea. And I'm, and that's just proof of the, you were using, you have to use a product to study the idea. And the idea is that we need more nutrients than what we're getting out of our food at the moment. The doses are higher than your recommended dietary allowance. And again, that's something that makes a lot of people feel really uncomfortable because they're being taught that you mustn't go over RDA. I don't know. Or there's just this sort of this, this magic about that number that is, isn't logical and isn't based in science. In fact, our brain needs are higher than RDA. And if you think about like a kiwi fruit, you'll go over RDA for vitamin C. And we're certainly not killing people with our export business. So we've got this, a very, some very outdated concepts continue to per, be quite pervasive, but it benefits the low RDA benefits the supplement industry. And it benefits ultra-processed foods because they don't ever hit RDA. If you eat a really healthy diet, you would be going over RDA for most of your nutrients. Interesting. Yeah, I know. It's surprising. I was surprised when I started to really look at the the nutrient content of different foods and compare them with ultra-processed foods. And it's like night and day. You're going to be like way below 20% of RDA for your most of your a lot of your ultra-processed products but you're going to be above your RDA for, say, your lentils, your fish in certain nutrients, your nuts, just five Brazil nuts, you'll go over it for selenium. You certainly don't want to overdose, though, on that either. With a lot of so, your fruits, you'll go over it for your some of your vitamins. Your, your folate, will be your B vitamins will be super high if you were to eat a lot of green vegetables. In this current food environment, is it possible to get rid of all those mental health issues if you just had a good diet in terms of having all those fresh fruit, veggies, fish, whatever, and no ultra processed foods? Or do we actually have to super supplement with these high dose nutrients? I mean, I always say food first. Absolutely. Because there's so much people can do. It's a low hanging fruit. Given at the population, we know at the population level, so many people are eating ultra processed foods. It is such an easy way to start. It does mean we need policy changes. We need to have support at a government level, probably in terms of possibly taxes for your sugary drinks, for example, could be a great place to start. And also figuring out how do you sort of change those fiscal levers that would encourage more people to eat your real whole foods. I don't think it would be the full answer for a number of reasons, like some of the things that I described before around some of the genetic differences. Some people might need more nutrients than what they can get out of their food because of differences in their genetics. But the other thing is that our mental health problems aren't just caused by our food environment. And I also, I will often start talks that I give by saying if we could just address things like poverty or the effects of colonization or trauma, 
the high prevalence of trauma in our population, exposure to traumatic events, domestic violence, food insecure, all of these things that are influencing our mental health, then we would go a long way towards addressing the mental health issues because you're going to have a combination of those things um, that are present in the people that you see who have got really significant mental health problems. So I don't want it to sound like just cure the change the food environment, but goodness, would we go a long way towards providing the, it's like a, I see it as like providing that resilience so that mm. when you come across those traumatic, when those stressors hit you, you are better prepared. Your fuel tank is full rather than empty, which is currently, our, we are operating on very low fuel tanks in terms of the, our vitamin and minerals. We have very little reserve left. And so then it gets easily eaten up when you hit a stressor. Because mm. think about the fight flight response. It's, it predominates. So you're going to, the body is going to give all its resources to support the fight flight response at the expense of everything else, like your sleep, like your regulation of emotions, and for good purpose, because it's about survival. Mm -hmm. So if you're already depleted, then you're going to use up your reserves really quickly because you're going to have a higher need for them. And then you have less available for everything else. And so it explains why we get sick when we're Mm -hmm. stressed, why we get angry when we're stressed, we're grumpy, all of these other things that happen, the reserves are getting depleted. So sometimes you need more. You need a more of a top-up depending on your life circumstances. I think we need more top-ups in pregnancy. I think we need t- teenagers need top-ups at a time when they are doing the opposite, which is why we decided to run a teen trial with micronutrients. There's a, I hope that sort of answers your question. It's not yeah. easy, but I want to say that it's, a, it's sort of like how resilient you are is going to be influenced by your food environment. I want to bring it back to your point about poverty and also mm-hmm. your, what you'd mentioned about the sugar tax on like sugary drinks. Yeah, It's difficult to draw the line of what's too much paternalism and what's not enough. Yeah, I and know. I find the sugary tax on, on the sugar tax on like sugary drinks. It's difficult because I'm not sold yet on that idea mm-hmm. because when you look at it, who's buying a lot of the sugary drinks? It's the, it's the lower income people. And one of the, one argument is that people who are in lower incomes, they a lot, not all of them, but some people choose to spend money on processed foods, fast food, sugary drinks, etc., because that's the joy in life that they can afford. Right? Yeah. Middle class people can afford to go on holidays, have expensive hobbies, yeah. and so don't need to spend that money on ultra processed foods. So if we add a sugar tax, is that just punishing the lower income people? And then when it comes to poverty as well, I see this a lot in my practice is that a lot of our lower income impoverished people also have worse diabetes and obesity. And as a clinician, I try and talk about it with my patients as much as I can, but I think there's people with different ideas about this. On the one hand, you have people saying, oh, well, if they're low income, they can't afford to um, eat healthy and you're just going to shame them for it. Oh, everybody is a healthy body, healthy at every size. If they're here in your clinic because they want to talk about epilepsy, then there's no point in bringing up the fact that they're well above the 99 point centile for their growth. On the other hand, it's like, well, if there's like a power differential in information, you as a clinician have the responsibility to actually tell somebody that, hey, even though they're here for epilepsy, that they're actually they're not looking after their over overall nutritional health. And like what we were saying before about the link between the brain and the gut and nutrition, better diet could actually improve their epilepsy. So where do we draw the line? Because of, of telling people that information or yeah, giving the advice or saying, oh, I'm not going to tell them because I don't think they're going to be able to afford it and it's going to shame them anyway. And we shouldn't be bringing up people's weight and diet in a clinic that they're not asking for that information. I know, I know. And it's tough. I push back a little bit against this thing that it's expensive to eat well. That's the first thing that I, I do like to kind of at least challenge because we, yes, if you go in a supermarket and you look at the ultra-processed foods, yes, they do appear to be cheaper. But, but and, and then maybe the tomatoes. But are you looking at them, comparing them to tomatoes out of season? So are you eating your fruits and vegetables in season? Canned and frozen vegetables are perfectly fine. And they are cheap. So that's another alternative of getting some of those fruits and vegetables into you, but not necessarily being as expensive. 
There are a lot. But the other thing that maybe people aren't aware of is that there's a lot more community gardens now than there used to be. And so it'd be about encouraging people to get engaged and involved with their local community garden. And then you produce produce super cheap. I mean, we've just started, uh, my husband and I, because our kids have, basically because our kids have left home and we have time, is that we've started gardening. And oh my goodness, not only does it feel good, but we have got such an excess of produce now, lettuces and peas and carrots and tomatoes. And and it's, yes, there's a bit of a, an expense to getting it going, but once it's going, it is super cheap to grow your own vegetables. But if you don't want to put out that outlay, then get involved in a community garden. And then there's foraging. You could just, there's foraging maps all over New Zealand where you can go and find the, the fruit trees and the walnuts, et cetera. So there are other ways of getting access to this, the fruits and vegetables at a different price. The other thing is that things like lentils, beans, chickpeas, those are nutrient dense, again, super cheap and super easy to make. So being a little bit more imaginative around and creative about what you eat and including things like those legumes, then you suddenly can eat really well, really tasty with lots of perhaps you're getting it into your herbs and spices at way cheaper than your ultra processed products and certainly way cheaper than takeaway. So I guess that's why I'm saying we need to push back a little bit on this concept. And that, and that I think, and then when you start to recognize that actually you can sometimes eat well at a, at on budget, then shouldn't that open up you up to then having that conversation? You, though I think though that the people in that power position though need to also be educated. They need to understand that there are other ways of eating than just thinking that it's lobster and steak. They need to know a little bit more about how to eat on a budget, and that's something that I've been exploring a lot more. Because I can't just sit here and tell people to eat well without having that experience myself of like trying to, I always recommend things that are going to be an easy and cheap thing to do. And I'm not naturally a cook and I haven't been the cook in our family <laughs> because I'm so busy with my academic career. But I've, I've come to, to see the necessity of becoming educated on cooking and gardening because then I come from a position of expertise. And so isn't it also part of the that that position for clinicians is to be able to talk confidently about it? I don't think it's hard. And I certainly don't think you need to be a dietitian to say some pretty basic things around reducing your consumption of ultra processed products and eating more real whole foods. And hopefully we all understand what that is. I guess what I just that was sort of a bit of a long answer in terms of just a bit of that pushback on it has to be expensive. And so then hopefully that opens the door to be able to talk about this with anybody from any socioeconomic status background. But I also think that we shouldn't be making choices for our patients either. And that is, or taking choices away from them without even telling them about it. So the supplements are, that we study are expensive. But, and I've had people tell me, oh, I don't recommend those supplements that you research because I know my patients won't be able to afford it. And I think we're making a presumption that they don't know how to budget, that they might be spending their money on other things that maybe that they shouldn't be buying. I don't know, but we're making some assumptions about what how people make their spend their money. And is that fair of us to take that choice away, not even offer it? You wouldn't do that with a cancer treatment that you'd have to mortgage your house for. So why do we do that when it comes to a treatment that has been proven to be efficacious for the treatment of mental health disorders? Yeah, I personally see talking about nutrition and lifestyle with whatever my patient has come to me for as an opportunity to improve their long-term um, health outcomes and no, no matter yeah. like what way. And a yeah. lot of lifestyle things are, are free. We know the benefits of going and exercising, walking in a green space, hanging out in nature, going for a cold water swim. There's all of these things that we know are good for, that can be influential in terms of our overall well-being, and they're totally free. I think we've, we really do do a disservice to simply only offer one very one approach with our medication approach and not sort of open up the conversation to some of the other things that actually don't necessarily have to cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. 
So we have enough time for one last question. So we've talked a lot about food. We've talked a lot about mental health. For you, what is your favorite dish from your favorite restaurant in the whole wide world? Oh, my goodness. My favorite dish from a restaurant. Or your favorite dish that you've made yourself or yeah. your partner's made for you. Any dish that's your favorite sure. dish in the whole okay, wide my world. my favorite dish. I mean, I really, like, one thing that I've embraced as a consequence of doing this research and also not to do a plug for the book, but I wrote The Better Brain and we had recipes in there. So I was kind of forced to have to really embrace cooking with different ingredients than I was used to. I absolutely love now doing things like with, say, lentils, coconut cream, lots of herbs and spices, putting lots of vegetables in there. That's And then making some, maybe some non bread from scratch, frying that up. There's a beautiful meal, really tasty, really nourishing, feel really good afterwards. And it lasts a long time and it can be your lunch for the next day and super cheap. And pretty cheap. cheap. And yeah. very cheap. Exactly. I mean, is it my favorite meal? I mean, I have, I also eat meat. I, there's some, there's some, I can't, I, I certainly wouldn't say no to really good locally grown grass fed beef, <laughs> but that's certainly not something that we have every day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Julia. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.